On today's episode of The Leadership Drives. We all help each other. So if you're going to be standoffish or not wanting to learn, I always say learners are earners. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to want more. And if I can see that in you and that kind of fire and passion, and then just work ethic. At the end of the day, in my opinion, you have to have grit. Mm-hmm. So I don't care if you're 70, I don't care if you're 20. If you don't have grit and you can't stay focused and you know try to achieve some type of goal, that's the number one key indicator. Mm-hmm. If you're lazy, your outcome's probably not gonna be great because you're not giving her full potential. Welcome to the Leadership Drives Podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Hello, podcast family, and welcome to the Leadership Drives, the podcast where you are invited to travel with me as I endeavor to study leadership in its various forms. I want to know how and why people lead, whether on or off the clock, paid or unpaid, at home or beyond. As you probably know, so much is written about the universal aspects of leadership, but context is where the rubber meets the road. In turn, I look for leaders whose contexts are anything but textbook. My goal is to understand what leadership looks like in their unique corners of the world. Now, I know I just said that I believe that context matters greatly. This is true. What is also true is that I believe the ways in which a person's labor, whether paid or unpaid, on the clock or off the clock, at home or beyond, I believe the ways in which a person's labor supports their highest and best vision of themselves is equally, if not more so, important. The lengths to which leaders will go to connect their inner drive to what they do every single day is captivating. This nexus is so remarkable to me that I prefer to meet my podcast guests in person. Whether it means a trip across the country or a simple drive up the New Jersey Turnpike, my goal is to understand the trade-offs, the choices that people make to gain alignment between their personal and professional lives and how that impacts their ability to create visions that other people can embrace. Thank you, Kelly, so much for um, opening your schedule in your home to have this actual conversation. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for driving down and glad to have you here in Atlanta. Indeed. As a matter of fact, I was so excited when I decided, you know what, I'm going to Atlanta. I'm going to post in UGA's alumni group because (laughs) that assures me a couple of things. That I'll get somebody who actually wants to have a podcast interview and not one of my girlfriends who's trying to use the trip <laughs> as a way to connect. So I appreciate the conversation. And I was so excited to get your response for a couple of reasons. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to people who work in organizations that I think most of my podcast guests aren't necessarily used to hearing from on my podcast. And I was like, oh my God, this would be great. This would be great. Yeah. So even though this might seem like a pretty abrupt turn, if you will, <laughs> I was 
really into thinking, okay, when I think of what you do in your organization, I'd like you to tell us at a moment what that is in your organization. Yeah. I thought, this company is primarily profit-driven. How do you motivate people in an organization when it seems like the organization is all about the money? Right. Because one of the things I hear a lot in a lot of the work that I do is how um, millennials and Gen Xers and, you know, the... They want values at work. They mm-hmm. want to be able to see um, what they believe allows them to make a contribution to society at work. And there's something in my mind, and perhaps it's a mental block. I think mm-hmm. organizations that focus primarily on the profit side of things, I'm often wondering how do they communicate to people that there's some sort of connection between what the organization does and their values. So how is that shaping up for you what you do? Yeah, so great question. Um, I think the big thing first is to acknowledge they have to make money, right? Or we wouldn't have jobs. So I think having a purpose and understanding, yeah, there might be 10,000 or 50,000 employees or whatever it is at any organization Mm -hmm. or two Mm -hmm. that we are here to make money. Mm -hmm. But that can also make you feel like a small fish in a really big ocean or a big pond. So I think it really comes down to the leader and how they match whatever your job duty is to the goals and vision of the larger corporation or company. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, then you feel like you're a part of something bigger. Now with our jobs, it's pretty simple. We're in forecasting for cash or currency and we work with banks and credit unions and tell them how much they need to have in their ATMs or branches or devices that they might have at their locations. Um, But if you think about it, cash runs our society. Now, yes, you can use debit and credit cards and all of that, but when you think of natural disasters, the only thing you can do is take cash. Um, Cash actually out in our economy is growing, even though the percentage of purchases is actually declining. So there's still a ton of cash floating around out there that people may not be used to. And you also have to think about the underbanked population which is anywhere from about 20 to 25% of the United States that heavily relies on cash. So when you think about it like that and you think of a bigger purpose within the world or why am I doing this, we have to have that for the economy to run. Mm -hmm. And that's something pretty special. So, yeah. So with that being said, and just for everybody else out there, how long did you, you work with Loomis? Yeah. How long have you been with Loomis? Um, so my company, Logic Path, was acquired by Loomis mm-hmm. almost three years ago. So I've been in my role for 10 years, or I guess growing into my role. Um, so I'm over sales and client services today. So anything that has to do with revenue or profits mm-hmm. on the Logic Path side is my team. What is Logic Path? I don't understand the relationship. Yep. So we actually take artificial intelligence and forecasting. So the analogy we always like to use is a box of cornflakes and maybe Target. If you think about that for a second, Target has to predict how many boxes of cornflakes or Cheerios or Frosted Flakes are going on their shelves every day, week, or month. And they have to get from one cornflake shipment to the next. Mm Don't want to run out, can't serve customers, you don't want a thousand boxes sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Mm -hmm. We're doing the same thing with the bank's or credit union's currency, but we're going to put some other measures in place and Loomis actually delivers the cash on the back end. So when you talk about supply chains or think about what we've been through the past few years with supply chain disruptions, that happened in cash as well. Everybody always thinks about going to the grocery store and then being out of bananas or meat or milk. The same thing can happen with currency because all currency flows back to the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. And um, it, a lot of people heard about the coin shortage too. Mm-hmm. Or you might have heard businesses mm-hmm. like 
we're not accepting coin or you have to give us exact coin. That affected us as well, but it actually made our business boom because now the old way people have always done things doesn't work anymore because the supply chain's disrupted. Um, so if we're able to accurately forecast their numbers based on the data that we receive from them, and then we can automate it. Think about it like automated bill pay for a minute. Mm-hmm. Once you get set up on automatic bill pay, are you writing a check any longer? No. No, right? So it makes it a little bit sticky where they send us the data, we forecast their cash, and then the money literally shows up. If they didn't do that, they'd have to 10 key type a bunch of data. Mm-hmm. A lot of them use guessing, guesswork, and uh, spreadsheets. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we sell an app and support it. Wow. So during the supply chain shortage, yeah. I heard about the change shortage. Yes. I never thought about that as a supply chain problem. Yes. Nobody does. No. <laughs> that, that makes sense. Yeah. But how is it, though, that with the world of swiping yeah. um, that you're able to compete with that? Is it primarily that you're serving the underbanked community? Because when I think of cash, I have to be honest. Yeah. As a woman who's actually on a cross-country road trip, this is stupid. Yeah. I don't have any cash at all. Right. Despite the fact that everybody in my family says you should at least have a hundred bucks because yeah. of cause what you do. But how do you um, just maintain the kind of presence that you do? Because you have people like me who are just trusting that they're going to go somewhere and find an ATM if they need it. Yeah. Well, the bank branches and the ATMs, you're going to see a lot more devices popping up. Mm-hmm. The ATMs, or I don't know if you've used a smart ATM before, they're called ITMs where you actually talk to a video teller. No. So it's a virtual teller machine. Those are popping up exponentially um, at a higher ratio than compared to like a branch mm-hmm. that we're all used to maybe dealing with. I never really go into the branch. I was raised on an ATM and those mm-hmm. came about in you know the late 80s. But the thing is, is there's still cash at those locations and their cash now might not be how their cash was 20 years ago. You also got to think about these banks and credit unions support their local communities, especially the community banks and credit unions. So they're getting, you know, cash from their local Papa John's or the local ice cream shop. That's still all ending up there. They either have to get rid of it because they don't need it. It still has to be shipped back. They don't just keep it there. Mm-hmm. And they have to have the right blend of denominations. So they might have a high intake of hundreds and tens, but they actually might need to order 20s. And believe it or not, banks and credit unions, I have a 20-year banking veteran Mm -hmm. on my team, and they'll order 20s and ship out 20s to the same driver. Thus, Loomis or Brinks or whoever is delivering the cash, they're actually delivering money that doesn't even need to be picked up, which is a whole different animal. You are listening to my conversation with Kelly McConnell, the Vice President of Sales and Client Partnerships at LogicPath, a subsidiary of Loomis, which is located in Atlanta, Georgia. I appreciated Kelly's clarity and focus on the importance of people skills and body language. Sometimes the world of work attempts to diminish how emotional intelligence impacts business and people's ability to work well together. Kelly was particularly straightforward about requiring cameras on during virtual engagement and about a certain type of openness and connection when her team is in the office. I mean, if you're still gonna send team and Zoom requests, why not just stay at home? When leaders are clear about requiring soft skills, 
alongside a team member's ability to deliver results. It is a gift to their team. Clarity gives people the information they need to be successful and to choose where they work. Moreover, what better way to show employees that you respect them than by being clear and consistent? Now, back to the conversation with Kelly. My first thought was, um, what's the point in a virtual teller as opposed to just a regular ATM machine? So I'm assuming that the smart ATM mm -hmm. has many more capabilities than what a traditional one has, because otherwise, why would yep. you invest in switching it over? Yep. So a lot of the, whether it's a big bank or a smaller bank or credit union, they're investing to take out their old ATMs, mm -hmm. turn them into these smart ATMs or ITMs. Essentially, there's four to five denominations. Mm -hmm. So like at my bank, I can only get a 20 out. If I went to an ITM, I could get four or five different denominations. Mm -hmm. And there's other machines out there that actually dispense coin and everything that you would need. So you're not bothering that in-person, uh, you know, teller or something like that. How did you get into this line of work? Because <laughs> I mean, when I think about Nobody knows about it. <laughs> when you grow up, what do you want to do? No. Manage cash. So, and I don't mean working in the bank. Like, yeah. yeah, how did you do So I got to take you back to high school, actually. Okay. So bear with me for a second. So I was always really good at math. Okay. And I was in a grade level above in math. And now I feel like IP classes are, you know, everywhere. And there's a bunch of kids that are super smart. But back then, there wasn't a bunch of, um, I'm sorry, IP classes, AP classes, geez. <laughs> um, but that wasn't really around when I was in school. And so I was a grade level head in math. And I took a statistics class. And I loved it. And, you know, I did well at school, but I also wanted to play tennis and have fun with my friends. And so my teacher's like, you're the only person in this class that likes statistics. Mm -hmm. But my brain is very logical and likes process. So my mom actually sent me to an actuary convention when I was a senior in high school and said, <laughs> you know, they make great money. You should be an actuary. I kid you not, I go to this actuary convention and they told me I talk too much. <laughs> and so I didn't think I could sit behind a computer and like calculate all these numbers. And while I was really good at math, I didn't know if I really wanted to like create code or something. Okay. So I was like, okay, screw that. So I go to college, take my math classes. I end up majoring in education because I really just wanted to graduate. Um, and I got my first job through a girl from high school. We weren't even super close. I was serving at a restaurant and she came in she's like you'd be great at sales and I was like I would love to go into sales and that's how I got my first job at ADP which they're the big payroll company mm -hmm. um, I can tell you all about that job um, but I've always kind of from that get-go and I have to thank Jenny Daniels who got me my first job that I've really stayed in this financial services or technology space and now I'm in fintech but now I say my natural talent of math I sell math for a living. I sell artificial intelligence. I sell process and inventory management. And that's really exciting to me, where probably to somebody else, it's not very exciting. Wow. So, yeah. Now you make me wish I loved math so much. <laughs> <laughs> when I think actuaries, you know what I think? Yeah. I think insurance. Yes, um, exactly. Yeah, I'm thinking risk. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what I think. I think about that kind of thing. Ironically, I met with a woman on Wednesday. Yeah. She's doing a project where she's focusing on data science yeah. um, for the Atlanta University Center. And what they're trying okay. to do is get 
uh, by the end of 2027, I think, their goal is to have at least 20,000 students with some sort of data science credential, oh, if not obtained in, yes. in process by the yeah. end of 2027 because of the way our society is changing and evolving. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, so I went and spoke at one of the local universities here and a couple of the high schools because I wanted to teach some of like the math and science-focused kids. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be in IT or development, like there is a path forward. We all know artificial intelligence, that's a whole nother mm-hmm. debate is out there um, and inventory management, but that's not gonna go away no. ever. That's only gonna be a growing industry, but you can still be in sales. You can still be in client services. There's other avenues of a business than just, you know, working at a cool technology company. Like everybody thinks, oh, I wanna work at Google or I wanna work at Apple. They wouldn't even know my job existed because I didn't know this type of job existed, you know, when I graduated college. So So just as a quick aside, I'm curious, as you're looking at how technology has evolved, and since you mentioned that a lot of what you all do is to help communities that are serving underbanked people, how are you feeling about how we're dealing with this issue around the safeguards around AI. I sat in a workshop eh, a few months ago with the EEOC and they were talking about how how AI is evolving in such a way that they're concerned that the automated system reflects the biases that we as people have. And if they're unchecked, then they're going to be people who are somehow marginalized or negatively impacted by all of these systems. What kind of safeguards are you seeing pop up that you think are going to help manage some of these issues and where do you think some of the loopholes are in your work? I think the safeguards have to come with human intervention actually and that might not be the answer you're expecting but I know with even what we sell but again we could forecast a tennis shoe if we wanted to it's 99% accurate like no mathematical algorithm can be 100% accurate 100% of the time Mm -hmm. it's not possible Mm -hmm. and that's actually the hardest part of our job is explaining that to somebody. But you as a human could also make a mistake, right? In my line of business, you could order the wrong amount of cash or whatever. I think it's going to come down to ethics mm-hmm. <laughs> and what's ethically right. Because even you know, before we started this podcast, we were talking about IVF. It's amazing. I have friends and family that have used it. And I'm so grateful that they have that technology. Mm-hmm. But there are some other pitfalls with that where you have to make some decisions mm-hmm. around what you're going to do when your IVF journey is over. Mm-hmm. I think the same way with artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. If it's going to help us be smarter or safer or better people, mm-hmm. then yes. But I think if we're going to use it for wrongdoing, mm-hmm. that, that's got to be the cutoff. Mm-hmm. So there's got to be some type of ethical standard of this is going too far. And I think that's the part that everybody's worried about. Yes. Are we helping the world or are we hurting it, essentially? I think what I'm worried about with are we going too far, I think we aren't having that conversation enough right now before it gets there. Right. I think where we're probably going to wind up, and this is just the way I see it and the way I think our country often works, we'll start working on some sort of regulation and guardrails once it's gone over the rails. We'll try to oh, dial yeah, it back. bad happens. And I'm like, yeah. what sense does that make? Right. Like, work on it now. Yeah. 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 Well, and I think people don't realize if you really study math, um, my cousin actually was really high up at one of the very large banks um, and he's since retired. But artificial intelligence and forecasting all of that has been around for 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. This actually isn't new to that 
community. Mm-hmm. It's just new to the common people. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the scary part because they already kind of know where the future is. They're just not sharing it with us. Mm-hmm. I'll say this just <laughs> when you say things like that, I always wonder like, if, what's the expression? Does art imitate life or does life imitate art? And I never thought about that. Yeah. And one of the things I think about with not just AI, but almost every facet of how we live, how much of what we see in entertainment and in art already exists and we just don't know it yet. Oh, yeah. You know, when I think about things that we're doing with DNA and cloning and trying to create alternative meat sources, I'm yes. thinking Jurassic Park is real. We just don't know it. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> but that happens to be my favorite set of series of movies, by the way, too. But have you seen people on social media where they've used some artificial intelligence to snap pictures of their face and it's really them? Mm-hmm. but they're in totally different settings. So it's like Photoshop on steroids. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, at what point is that fake? Mm-hmm. To your point, one of the <laughs> things that I've even thought about with being a small business owner, yeah. um, looking at how I might use artificial intelligence to help me with certain parts of marketing. Yes. And the ethical question and the values question that I believe I need to answer um, are things like, okay, if I do that, at what point do I see that I'm cutting a job potentially? Yeah. And what kind of obligation or commitment rather, because I don't believe I'm obligated necessarily, but what kind of commitment do I want to maintain to not only the people who work with me now, mm-hmm. but how I want to grow? And I need to think about that before I get into that. Yeah. And on the other hand, I think about if I'm going to use AR to make videos, because it would be a tremendous time saver. Right. Do I need to put that disclosure? Hey, this isn't really me. <laughs> you know, a machine made it. But, yeah. but thinking about what those kinds of things, and if in my small part of the world, if I need to think about those kinds of things, I'm wondering how is it that this huge, uh, I'm going to call it game changer, yeah. as it is trickling down. How is it that folks in higher um, places in terms of the AI uh, food chain, I'm like, how is it that they aren't, um, pushing some sort of ethical discussions about these things now yeah. because I can't control that. I think as an individual, I have very little ability to impact that. Right. But I think they should have more of an obligation or duty to guide that conversation. Well, I feel like it's pretty helpful if you could use AI from like a marketing standpoint. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, you have to make data-driven decisions exactly. and you have to make money. I have to make money. We all have to do something to support ourselves. But I think even when you go to the I'll switch gears for a second. It's not even artificial intelligence. Let's just take the machines at McDonald's now where they don't even take your order Mm -hmm. and it's just a self-serving kiosk or even when I go to the grocery store, those things still break down. People still have to fix them. So are we just moving the jobs around or are we really cutting out jobs? Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have to deal with what jobs are actually out there and who suits them, Mm -hmm. right? That's been the big thing over the last... 24 months or so is they say there's jobs out there, but then the people aren't the right fit. So I think back to your friend of saying, hey, you need to focus on data science and you need to focus on math. You're going to have to, else she really might not have a job. So I think it's also about not putting yourself in that position Mm -hmm. as much as you can Mm -hmm. um, to make sure that you can be successful with whatever the future is going to hold for us. Indeed. So speaking of that, as yeah. you're talking to people on your team, yeah. since you mentioned you already made some presentations to university groups, yeah. 
What kinds of advice are you giving them other than making sure that you have strong math skills um, so that they can compete in the workforce of not tomorrow, today, it's here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, We'll show up to your interview. (laughs) (laughs) Is it that bad? We got to It's not bad. No, it's not bad. We've had people ghost for interviews. Um, I think just an overall lack of professionalism. Um, so we'll start there. Um, that's a shame. Yes. <laughs> that's bad. It is. It's kind of back to the basics. And that's what I'm trying to teach people. Like have somebody look at your resume, make sure there aren't errors on there. Make sure it makes sense. Make sure if I'm looking at your resume, I know what you do, how you do it, how you've been successful, mm-hmm. you know, make yourself look good, but make it reality. Mm-hmm. Show up, you know, look professional. I'm in the banking space. It's a, a lot more old school, you know? You know, when we go to our leadership meetings and stuff, it's full suits. You need to know where you're applying for a job. And my husband's in marketing, a little bit more relaxed, but you still would rather be overdressed than underdressed and tone it down when you actually get the job. So that's a little bit of the advice. Um, then, I mean, just knowing something about the company. <laughs> I can't tell you how many people like think we're another company or whatever. And it's, I can't even take you seriously mm-hmm. in an interview if you know nothing about us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually very different in my interview styles. I actually turn the resume over. I've already looked at it. Somebody's already gotten them to my desk. Mm-hmm. I'm over sales and client services. I can talk to a rock. (laughs) If you can't talk to me in an interview, then you're definitely not going to cut it for the job. But I need to make sure you're a good culture fit, that you're going to fit in with the team, that, you know, we all help each other. So if you're going to be standoffish or not wanting to learn, I always say learners are earners. Um, You have to want more. And if I can see that in you and that kind of fire and passion in whatever you do. Again, I didn't know I was going to be selling this. I just, you know, wanted a job at some point and look what it's turned into. And then just work ethic. You know, there's a lot of people that don't want to work. And I mean, with my job, we have it pretty, made it pretty good. I mean, we work from home 99% of the time Mm -hmm. outside of the travel that I do. What more could you want? The other thing is you are going to have a manager or a boss that should coach you. But the other big thing that I teach is most managers aren't good teachers. So if you don't know how you learn and you didn't learn that in college or in high school, you've got to figure out, do I need to hear things? Do I need to do things? Because your manager might not know that. I was trained with, here's a notebook go read it and uh, we're going to get on the phone in two weeks. That's definitely not how I train my people, but you have to be patient with new people and give them a certain amount of time, but you also have to see that level of effort. And I I don't think a lot of young students really realize that. I think they're so excited to get their first job and they think, oh, I'm just going to operate how I was in college. And that isn't the real world. And then we can go there if you want, but there's a lot of Uh, politics in companies Mm -hmm. not always the best person gets the job Mm -hmm. it's how they play their internal politics it's their relationships that they build and what does their upper management see for them as their future Mm -hmm. and I've seen that happen a lot of times where yeah you can be super smart up here 
but it doesn't matter if you can't get it out. So the other thing with, uh, especially where we live, there's a lot of people that become doctors and lawyers. Think about the best doctor. Yes, of course you want a smart doctor, but do you really go look most of the time at their credentials? No, you're like, you care about their bedside manner. Mm -hmm. So again, if you can't have a conversation or listen to your patients, or run a good practice or run a good business, you're not going to be a successful doctor. Good point. So I think it comes down to the people skills. And unfortunately, with all of the text messaging that we do and technology, um, I think that gets lost a little bit, especially in the younger generations, unfortunately. (laughs) Let me ask you this. To your point about the people skills, I get it when people say they think younger folks um, have some deficiencies in that area. But what about some of your middle-aged folks? Um, Do you see some of those shortcomings in people's skills with them? I think it's everybody. I think it comes down to knowing, um, I'm very big on knowing your personality type Mm -hmm. and then what strengths you have and also where you might need to improve. At the end of the day, in my opinion, you have to have grit. So I don't care if you're 70, I don't care if you're 20, if you don't have grit and you can't stay focused and, you know, try to achieve some type of goal, every company has goals. (laughs) So whether you're a developer or you're in sales, you're going to have to have a goal. That's the number one key indicator. Mm -hmm. If you're lazy, your outcome is probably not going to be great because you're not giving your full potential. You know, you're not seeking out your full potential because you're being lazy. Question for you, since you you talk about that uh, in the sense of working remotely and having goals, one of the things I've seen with the rise of the pandemic, a lot of the teams that I provide consulting services to have a significant um, work from home component. Mm Where I'm seeing organizations struggle is two things, so I do want to talk about both of these. Okay. But on one hand, um, how are we dealing with conflict now that so many of our folks are working remote? I know when I'm brought in, it's the weirdest thing. So it's like, let me get this straight. So your team of six people Mm -hmm. work remotely. Many of them may not have even met in person. And they don't get along. Yeah. How do you deal with that? <laughs> like, what are we doing? Remote fighting. Yes. <laughs> no, I, again, I think it comes down to communication. Mm-hmm. So this is where I think every manager struggles too, because, and everybody's going to have their own viewpoint. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in going to the office where everybody shuts their doors. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause I've seen that happen. And then we're still chatting on teams. What was the point? Right. I think right now, though, and we struggle with this, too, is everything gets sent through a Teams chat when if you were in the office, you would walk up to somebody's desk or knock on their door and be like, hey, do you have a second? Mm -hmm. But I think you can master almost full time working remotely if you do a few things. One is I say for every like, you know, weekly meeting or team meeting or pipeline review, you get on video because body language says a lot if i'm sitting here like this doing this podcast you're gonna think i'm like extremely pissed at you right now (laughs) versus like hey you know how are you doing so i think just turning on the freaking camera is step one um i've actually you're gonna laugh but at the very beginning of covid you know i went to work 
dressed nicely, had my makeup on, and I get a freaking black eye at the beginning of COVID when we're all on video. And I'm like, I can't turn on this video. I got so over not wearing makeup and all of that where I'm like totally opposite now. I'm like, I had a black eye and I'm talking to my boss. So um, I think people just have to get over that part. Um, I think also working from home before it was like so taboo if Amazon came and your doorbell rang where everybody now just kind of glosses over it. So I think that's nice, but I think you have to turn on the camera for the important conversations. And Would you, you go so far as to make it a requirement? I do make it a requirement for certain meetings. Okay. Like, and I won't start unless the camera's turned on. Like, I don't care if you're in your pajamas. I don't care if you have bags under your eyes. Like I tell everybody, we don't care what you look like. Half the time they see me in just a t-shirt and sweats and mm-hmm. my hair's up in a big messy bun. And I wouldn't talk to a client like that, of course, mm-hmm. but let's all be real. Let's just cut to business. And that's one of the benefits of working out from home is you don't have to get ready every single day. So, but you can't hide behind chat. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing is then you start having all these chats and then people read something and they might think you're being snippy mm-hmm. when you weren't because you didn't get a chance to see their body language. You didn't get a chance to experience tone. They're just reading the text and being like, oh my God, Susie's after me when that's not even the case. Do you have um, advice for mm-hmm. leaders and organizations? And I literally, I have a specific client of mine. I would yeah. mention their name, but that non-disclosure agreement messed me up. They have a problem on their team right now where they have all sorts of divisions, different yeah. groups. Some of the groups are being required by their division leader to come back into the mm-hmm. office. And some have a little bit more flexibility. Yeah. How would you manage this? perception that team A gets more respect, more flexibility than team B, when team B is run by someone who believes, I need my people to interact. I need them to do some of the things that they do in person. How do you balance that kind of argument that you're seeing people have? I actually think it's unfair to the leaders. I think that comes directly from the CEO because we were actually a hybrid, working situation before COVID. So the last 10 years, all I know is part-time in office. Like it's, I don't even know what it would take for me to be convinced to go back to an office. And my cousin and her husband are some of my dear best friends and they have a hundred percent pretty much in office policy. And I said, you guys are totally missing out on big time candidates by not being, you know, at least partial work from home. Um, We had this situation where my old boss, we had to come in three or four days a week and another team could come in one day a week. Mm -hmm. And it caused so much drama. Mm -hmm. There has to be a standard across the board. Mm -hmm. I think you also have to look at job duties. Again, for my organization, we've got IT. A lot of times they don't want to talk to anybody anyways, <laughs> or just their team, like they're speaking another language. I love them dearly and we need them, mm-hmm. but you have sales. Well, you're supposed to be on the phone and talking to customers. Mm-hmm. So, and we do all of that virtually over Zoom. Mm-hmm. Client services, supposed to be talking to customers. I mean, the only time I really see that you have to collaborate is if we're getting on a whiteboard or we're getting in a conference room and like truly collaborating about some bigger plan and I could still even argue you can do that over Zoom. But I 
I think the CEO has to make the executive decision or it's, it's too much of a personal opinion now because of COVID Mm -hmm. where you have people like me, my husband are like, I mean, I've, I've turned down jobs where I'm not coming in, but it's not because I don't want to be seen. It's because we live here in Atlanta to get anywhere. I don't care if it's seven miles down the road, it's 40 minutes Mm -hmm. during Atlanta traffic. I was telling you before you came in, we used to drive all the way from Vinings, Mm -hmm. which is where the baseball stadium is, on 285, which is always a bottleneck, you know, to Stone Mountain or up here in Johns Creek. And I get, I know you're listeners all all over, but it'd be an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And we had strict working hours too. We could not leave the office. It took me until five thirty to go ten miles to get here. Yes, yes, it's that's what I'm saying. It's always yes. thirty or forty minutes. It's mm-hmm. not. We don't have the public transportation or mm-hmm. anything like that. When and then you add in the people that have kids that have to get them on the bus at a certain time. There is no jumping ahead of the traffic because mm-hmm. the traffic starts once the school buses hit the road. Mm-hmm. It's just a, I think a lose lose situation. For most people, nothing here is just 20 minutes away anymore mm-hmm. is the problem. Yeah. See, you need to come back more. <laughs> <laughs> I can you know, every time I come to Atlanta, whether I drive or fly, yeah. the traffic is always bad. It, it is. It, it never gets Have bad. you seen that meme where it says... Uh, morning rush hours from 6 a.m. to 10.30, <laughs> lunch rush hours from 11 to 2, and then afternoon rush hours from like 3 to 8. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. I absolutely believe that. That is absolutely true. <laughs> I believe, too, now where I live in Philadelphia, yeah. in the region, rather, I live in Jersey, I think I am 11 miles from downtown Philadelphia. Huh. It takes me an hour if yes, I drive. I believe that. If I take the train, which is usually my preference, if you want to meet me, I'm like, right. we got to meet in the city and we've got to meet along the public transit line because I can get there 30 minutes on the train. Right. But I'm not sitting in traffic and then spending 40 bucks on parking. Well, and you have to think about what that's doing to your employees. Like, mm-hmm. it's stressful mm-hmm. <laughs> driving in that traffic mm-hmm. and when you know you could be doing work at home. And I might be different, but they actually get way more work out of me working from home because I will get on here early. Oh, my kids are off on the bus at seven ten in the morning. I'm going to hop on. Mm-hmm. Where before, I would have been getting ready. I would have been driving to the office. I would have been preparing for mm-hmm. a time to leave. And you have to agree, Marta is not the same as like the tea in Boston or something like that. It's Marta doesn't even go anywhere. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm hoping it's getting better. No, it saying. doesn't even come up here. I used to live inside the perimeter and it would take me longer to get to the Marta station than to get to where I needed to go. Yeah, that's a fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Question for you. So when you start talking about, because as you're talking about, you know, looking at how do you make life easier for your employees. Yeah. When you think specifically about what you've done over the years of your career as a mm-hmm. manager, what are some of the things that you discovered almost by happenstance or mistake, if you will, that you're like, you know, that really is something that my people appreciate or there's this one or two things that I can do differently that makes things easier for my team it's really simple Mm -hmm. number one I think celebrating their birthdays Hmm. and getting the team to sign a card and really like letting them know because you never know life's hard Mm -hmm. you don't know what's going on in their friend group sometimes Mm -hmm. or going on in their family like what if they're in a fight with their family and they just broke up with their boyfriend or got a divorce or something sometimes you know that sometimes you don't 
a little bit goes a long way. A handwritten card or a thank you. Um, I really try to, if I'm able to give them their birthday off, first off, if I ever get to be like CEO of the world someday, I think everybody should have their birthday off. I vote for you. <laughs> I vote for you. Nobody wants to work on their birthday. Come on. Um, I think recognizing them, of course, at the holiday times. And the other big thing is just random recognition, like public recognition, though. So I'll send out uh, sales win emails to the entire company, whether you're, again, in IT or you're in marketing. Um, but I also need everybody to know, like, hey, they brought in a sale. That means we all get to keep our jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a big uh, survey that we get back from, like, a very large client and they're like, you know, one of my employees is so awesome. I want everybody in the company to know that, but it's also a good way for people to copy them. Another piece of advice in these presentations that I give is copy the person that does it best. Quit trying to think that your way is the only way to do something. Um, see what works within that organization because what you did before may or may not apply to how their systems and processes are set up. Find the person at that organization that's really good that you can look up to. Maybe you can, they can kind of be some type of mentor to you. I think that's extremely helpful. Um, and then just getting together. So since we're not all together, um, I, we make it a big deal to do team building events. And I let them choose their team building events. They're by far favorite to date, regardless if they're 60 or 25, is to run a boat and go out on Lake Lanier. Are you serious? Couldn't believe it. I didn't know everybody wanted to get in bathing suits in front of everybody, but (laughs) that's seriously their favorite. We've had a DJ and a chef, and we have a really good time. We've gone to Braves games. Um, This upcoming one that we're doing, we're doing like, uh, it's called, I think, Board and Brush, where we all get to pick our unique Mm -hmm. item and we get to paint. But even the guys want to do that. We've gotten massages. We go out to nice dinners. But I tell them, like, y'all choose, and y'all decide. Why would I want to give them something rewarding that they don't find rewarding? It's kind of like my kids. Mm-hmm. I can get them to clean our playroom upstairs for two Skittles because that's their currency. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it almost kind of sounds like, I don't know if you're into, there's yeah. uh, Dave Chapman. He wrote this book called The Five Love Languages. Yes. And one of the things he talks about is one of our problems when we are in relationships with people, mm-hmm. he also has the corporate version of this book too, yeah. is that we... Oh, should, I didn't know there was a Yes, it's the five love, like the oh, five read that. appreciation, because we don't necessarily use love at work, sure. the five appreciation languages of the workplace. Okay. And one of the things he talks about is that we tend to celebrate people yeah. in the ways that are most comfortable for us. Yes. He said, you give something they don't want yeah. to your point, then you're feeling like they don't see you appreciating them. Right. It's like, no, you gave me what was easy right. or natural for you to give. If that's not what I wanted. Yeah. Also, too, in terms of your point about giving people um, appreciation, is there something that you have found simply, not simply, mm-hmm. beyond the thank you and um, sharing that somebody has done well mm-hmm. that actually works? Well, I think, too, just everybody wants PTO. Everybody wants more money and everybody wants okay. more PTO. So I think also recognizing, like, hey, you know, all of our cases are closed and client services like skirt out 2.30, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what people want because everybody works, you know, you hope that they like the work that they do. Some people do, some people don't. That's just the facts of life. Mm -hmm. We all have crap going on 
outside of life. So if I can give them two hours to go pick up their kid early or meet their boyfriend or whatever stage of life they're in, I think that's invaluable to them. You just listened to part one of our interview with Kelly McConnell, who is the Vice President of Sales and Client Partnerships at LogicPath, a subsidiary of Loomis, which is located in Atlanta, Georgia. Please be sure to check out part two. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe, share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Leadership Drives.